Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Now, out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, I will conclude the reading by saying this is the word of the Lord. And then I invite you all to respond with me. Thanks be to God. Our reading this morning comes from 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, thanks, Andrew. You guys can grab a seat. Uh, good morning. It's good to be with you. If I have a chance to meet you, my name is Ian. I have the privilege of being uh, one of the pastors here at the King's Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. It uh, feels a bit kind of like a, a sleepy July morning here, so we've got a very chill vibe going on. Uh, so in the midst of that chill vibe, let me ask you a question. When is the last time you thought about the end of the world? When's the last time you talked about the end of the world as we know it? You see, that's what's going on here in the middle of this letter is Paul is trying to correct some faulty understandings in the church of Thessalonica about the end of all things. And I think as a culture, we... Uh, we do have some level of fascination with the end of the world, don't we? After all, we love a good disaster, mass destruction, apocalyptic type movie, don't we? I mean, just look at the blockbuster hits from the past 15 years. They are marked by superheroes thwarting the end of human civilization, or they're marked by about 15 Godzilla movies, right? Now, I love Godzilla. I'm not above that, okay? But here's the thing. I think as we kind of have the end of the world in that realm, we, we keep it kind of as a trivial matter, rather than anything that actually has something that has a bearing on our lives today. You see, we love a good disaster end of the world film, I think partly because it stays a bit outside of ourselves. It's in the realm of entertainment to be enjoyed, but when we interact with people in the real world who seem to be very concerned about the end of the world, we tend to view them as a bit crazy, don't we? I mean, they're kind of the conspiracy theorists. They're superstitious. Maybe they're just flat out strange. And oftentimes, there's good reason to think that, right? Some people are just weird and crazy. But you could point to any number of people who get carried away with the predictions and signs of the age or the return of Christ that would fulfill that stereotype. But despite that, the return of Christ, and hence the end of the world as we know it, is actually a major focus of the scriptures. The Bible talks about the end of the world quite frequently, and it isn't doing so just for our entertainment or for mere information. 
It is doing so so that it might impact our daily lives in the here and the now. You see, brothers and sisters, our future hope ought to produce a present faithfulness and preparedness in us. That's the emphasis here of First Thessalonians. I think it's a helpful reminder. I love what uh, Jeff Meadows and Brandon Smith, they say, whatever your position on eschatology, the end of the world is or isn't, if it doesn't foster encouragement of other Christians or empower you to live an eternity-driven life, you haven't understood your eschatology. In fact, the end of all things is the greatest hope the world has. If eschatology is not encouraging and life redirecting, it's simply not biblical. So this morning, I want to step into the biblical language about the end of the world, and we're going to end where the Apostle Paul ends with a word of encouragement. This is meant to be an encouragement to us sitting here in this room today. So as you look at 1 Thessalonians 5, those first 11 verses, here's our main idea today. We must prepare for the sudden return of Christ by living spiritually alert and awake. We must prepare for the sudden return of Christ by living spiritually alert and awake. Before we jump in, let's go before the Lord and ask him to bless our time. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for these dear friends, these brothers and sisters who have come this morning to worship you. We pray today that your word would speak to them, that it would communicate the hope of Jesus to them in the midst of a broken and fallen and messy world that we find ourselves in. Lord, I pray that you would give us today ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to respond to the good news that the end of all things means for our lives in the here and the now. Lord, I pray we would not be a people who live unprepared for your return, but you would stir up within us by your Holy Spirit love and good works that we might look forward to our day of hope, the return of Christ, and we might tell others about the good news that awaits us there. Lord, I pray you would accomplish your goodwill now in our time. We pray that all in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at the idea of Christ's return, I want to look at three movements here today. I want to look at the nature of Christ's return, preparing for Christ's return. Then I want to end with a word of hope regarding his return. So look back with me at verses 1 through 3. Paul says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need for anything to be written to you. You see, the Thessalonians were confused about all these things related to the end times, and they specifically seem to have asked Paul, hey, Paul, listen, we know that Jesus is coming back. You've told us clearly that's going to happen, but do you think you could just tell us when that's going to happen? I mean, after all, if we know the times and the seasons, if we know exactly when he's going to return, we can be prepared. So can we kind of get the inside scoop here, Paul? When's he coming back? And this question of timing is not unique to this specific church. This is actually a frequent point of conversation in the life of Jesus himself. His own disciples who lived with him every moment of every day for three years asked him the very same thing. But Jesus responded point blank in Matthew 24 and he said, concerning the day and the hour of my return, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. But the curiosity continued for the disciples. In the book of Acts, after Jesus' crucifixion, after his resurrection, right before his ascension in Acts 1, it says, So when they had come together, the disciples, that same group, asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
And then he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons. The same language, by the way, is what we see in our passage. It is not for you to know the times and the seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority. See, the Bible is consistent. The only thing certain about the timing of the Lord's return is that no one can be certain about it except God himself. But I think there's another layer of curiosity here from the Thessalonians. Paul says that regarding the times and the seasons, you have no need for anything to be written to you, for you are fully aware that the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord will come. Now that phrase, day of the Lord, is not a generic designation. That is a technical phrase, and one that has rich and deep Old Testament roots. And the more you go back to the Old Testament and you read about the day of the Lord, specifically in the prophets, the more you would want to know about its timing as well. Because if you look at the prophet Amos or Joel, for example, they talk about the day of the Lord being simultaneously a great day and a horrible day. Let's start with the bad news first, shall we? It's a horrible day because it is a day of judgment where all who have sinned against God will have to give an account to him. Every single action, thought, and intention will be laid bare before the omniscient and omnipotent God of the universe. And when this horrible day comes, the prophets tell us that the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon will be turned to blood. That's why people get real weird about blood moons and eclipses, okay? It comes right there from the prophets. We don't have to be weird about it, by the way, but it is there. The sun will be darkened, the moon will turn to blood. But it's also a great day. There are hints of hope within this. Yes, the coming day of the Lord is a day of great reckoning, but it is also a day of salvation. It is a day of salvation for those who are in God's kingdom. It's a day of vindication for those who love God and are seeking to be faithful to him. So within this context, Paul is writing them and he says, listen, you're asking the wrong question. He says, I have no need to write anything more to you, even though he's going to. I love that about Paul. You don't have, I don't need to say anything to you, but here's a little bit more. So Paul's reminding them, you don't have exhaustive information, but you do have sufficient information. And to remind them of that sufficient information, he gives them two images. Look at the end of verse 2. You're fully aware the day of the Lord will come, first image, like a thief in the night. Like a thief in the night. This is the most common imagery about Christ's return in the scriptures. Jesus himself refers to his coming as a thief. Peter refers to it. Paul right here. And when you get to the book of Revelation, Jesus says it again. A thief in the night. Then in verse 3, our second imagery. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. Let's take these two images together. Thief in the night, labor pains. What do they tell us about the return of Christ? What is that sufficient information we have? Well, first of all, it tells us that the return of Christ will be sudden and surprising. Sudden and surprising. A good thief does not announce their presence or their intentions or their plans, do they? I mean, they're coming at a time when the owner does not expect it. If you catch a thief in the act, it's surprising and alarming. It's meant to be. The thief is trying to do their work without anyone knowing. Likewise, even in pregnancy, though you know that due date is coming, though you are carrying that baby for nine-something months, speaking from secondhand experience here, those labor pains, they come suddenly, don't they? It's like, oh, that's different. 
It's go time, isn't it? And once they arrive, there's no stopping them. That baby is coming. So it'll be sudden and surprising. But it won't just be that. It will also be disruptive. It'll be disruptive. A thief is not there just to shoot, like, shoot the breeze and hang out. Right? The thief is there to take and steal. And the act of that is disruptive for our lives in every way. Maybe you've had a break-in happen before. I mean, it's a jarring experience, isn't it? Likewise, certainly the birth of a child is disruptive. Amen, parents. Right? If those labor pains come and you're in an important meeting, guess what? That meeting's not important anymore. Right? It is massively life-reorienting. And this day will be particularly disruptive to those who just carry on with their lives with no concern for the day of the Lord. Paul says here that people will say, there is peace and security. We have no reason to worry. He's actually using a little play on words here. He's picking on the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that marked this time period. You see, this Pax Romana, it lured those who lived in this time to assume that life was just fine. Things are peaceful. Things are flourishing here. We have no reason to fear any kind of judgment. We have no reason to fear any kind of, kind of supernatural intervention into our world. This is the same thing that Peter warns about, by the way. In 2 Peter, he says this, knowing that, first of all, scoffers are going to come in the last days with scoffing. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation, peace and security. And by the way, this is essentially the secular worldview, isn't it? Everything's just continued on since creation. Everything is evolving as it's supposed to. Things are carrying on. There's peace and security. This was true in Peter's day. How much more true is it today, 2,000 years later? But the scriptures are clear. A day of reckoning is coming. The day of the Lord will come, and it will come suddenly and unexpectedly, like a thief in the night, like labor pains on a pregnant woman. This is meant to jolt awake a Pax Romana kind of conscience. It's meant to disrupt our false sense of worldly peace and security that could be gone in an instant. One day, every person will stand before the Lord. And the Lord who sees all things will ask for an account. It's a great day, but it's a sober day. It's a humbling day. And quite frankly, it can be a scary day outside of the grace of Jesus Christ. But Paul is quick to remind us of the grace of Jesus Christ. So let's turn there and talk about preparing for Christ's return. So that's the day that's coming. How do we live now to be prepared for that? That seems to be a concern in this church. They know the prophecies about the day of the Lord, and they're a little fearful. How do we get ready for that day of judgment that is coming? Well, that's where Paul picks it up in verse 4. He says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You see, what the Thessalonians needed more than the exact timing of the return of Christ was a posture of preparation. And Paul says, listen, if you are in Christ, your situation is different. You are not without warning. You know the thief is coming, so to speak. So how do we be ready? How do we pre prepare so that we're not surprised? Well, Paul's going to remind this church and us that in Christ, both our status and our lifestyle have been transformed by the grace of God 
so that we're prepared for that day. He begins with their status, continuing on in verse 5, for you all are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Paul's continuing that thief in the night imagery, and he compares and contrasts darkness and light. This is a common imagery in the scriptures. Throughout the Bible and in our world in general, think about light. Light represents illumination. Light is guiding. Light itself brings life, and it brings warmth and comfort. Darkness, on the other hand, it represents disorder. It represents chaos and death and coldness. In the scriptures, darkness is associated with sin and evildoing. Maybe you've heard your mom say before that nothing good ever happens after midnight. That's somewhat true spiritually. There's nothing good that happens in the darkness spiritually. Darkness represents the works of the flesh and evil and all that is set against the Lord. In the Bible, ever since Genesis 3, this fallen world is shrouded in darkness, waiting for light to rise upon it. And that's why the scriptures describe the coming of Christ precisely in this way. Jesus, when he comes in John 8, says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And it's for this reason that salvation itself is often described as being transferred from darkness to light. Paul says over in Colossians that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So brothers and sisters, if you have turned in faith to Christ, we have no reason to fear. We have no reason to be surprised by the thief in the night. We are children of the light. We are children of the day. Our status has been changed. We now have been enlightened to the truth. We've been brought into the kingdom of light, which means we can be ready and watchful for that day. If that's our status in Christ, that ought to stir up a brand new lifestyle in him as well. There's three exhortations in these verses. They're super practical. I want to get very practical in this section. Three metaphors for what it means to stay ready in the Christian life for the return of Christ. The first comes in verse 6. Paul says, So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake. The first exhortation is to stay awake. Think about what your body does when you sleep. I mean, your body is consciously disconnecting. It is disengaging from the real world, so to speak. It is turned off from the things around you. Now, this is not a problem physically. God has created us to sleep, and to sleep a lot, by the way, like a third of your life is going to be spent sleeping in a bed. Okay, so that's not a problem physically, but to be spiritually asleep is dangerous. To be asleep spiritually is the idea of indifference. It's to be disengaged and disconnected with the things of God. It's to be unaware of what the Lord might be doing. You are simply dreaming your way through life if you are spiritually asleep. So what does that practically mean? How do we stay awake? Well, I would argue that one of the best metrics of spiritual alertness and awakeness 
and our relationship with the Lord can be found by looking at our prayer life. And I know in the world that we live in, prayer can be incredibly challenging. It's not flashy and instantaneous and exciting all the time like the things the world offers us. It's probably not going to give you that dopamine hit that picking up your phone does, does it? But prayer is a mark of staying awake. So church, are we staying awake by being spiritually engaged in prayer? He's going to say it next week. I'll let Rob deliver it to you. He says, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Pray all the time. Are we communing with the Lord in prayer in his word? Are we opening up the word of God and praying our way through it? Are we engaged in a relationship with the Lord by using these means? You see, when we commune with the Lord in a daily way, we are building in rhythms of grace that are preparing us for eternity. Listen, we're going to spend eternity with Jesus. The way that we prepare is by spending every day right now with Jesus. Are you doing that? Another practical reality of staying awake is to be watchful. There's nothing scarier than being in a pitch dark place and hearing a noise that you can't identify, right? That's why those of you who love camping are always a bit crazy to me. Beyond the sleeping outside, on the ground part, beyond the going to the bathroom outside, you have no idea what's out there, right? You're in your tent and you hear noise. It could be anything. You have no idea what it is. But Paul's reminding us, since we've been delivered from darkness, we can see. For the Christian, the lights have been turned on, so to speak. So we open our eyes. We're watchful for evidences of God's grace and activity. We look hard to see where he's already at work. Maybe rather than criticizing or scrutinizing everything around us, or maybe rather than just going through our days rushing from one thing to the next on our to-do list or our calendar, what if... We paused and we looked at the world and the people around us through the lens of grace. What if we looked? What if we were proactively looking for the ways that God is already at work in our brothers and sisters in Christ? What if you were watchful in encouraging them in the ways that you're seeing them grow in the Lord? What if we were watchful in that kind of way? That's what it means to stay awake. But secondly, we are to also stay sober. Paul means this so much, he says it twice. At the end of verse 6, he says that we are to be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Now, Paul is speaking symbolically here to encourage us to live with clarity and with self-control. That's what soberness is. Drunkenness signifies a numbness. And it's an opening of the door to any number of other sins in the scriptures. Now, certainly, physical drunkenness would go against what Paul is urging here, right? I'm aware I'm giving these words in a bar, okay? We can all appreciate the irony a little bit, okay? Physical drunkenness would certainly be included here, but he's applying this principle spiritually. So what does it mean to be sober spiritually? Well, I think one commentator is hopeful. G.K. Beale goes backward and asks what it means to be drunk spiritually. He says to be drunk spiritually is to imbibe too much of the world's way of looking at things and not enough of the way God views reality. To be intoxicated with the world's wine is to be numb to feeling any fear in the presence of a coming judgment. 
You see, as God's people, we must push back against any kind of worldliness that draws us into this kind of lifestyle of being intoxicated or numbed by the things of this world, which means we avoid all kinds of worldliness. Instead, we stay alert, we stay sharp, we pursue the renewal of our minds through the power of the Holy Spirit. We do not spend excess time in foolish controversies or the gossip of the day or meddling in the lives of others. No, we stay sober. And as we do that, thirdly, we are to take up the armor of God and the weapons of the kingdom. Paul says in verse 8, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet, the hope of salvation. You're probably familiar with this armor of God language. It's used commonly in the scriptures, but the idea is just as you wake up in the morning and get dressed for the day, hopefully you do that, right? As you wake up and you get dressed for the day, so too you wake up in the morning, Christian, and you get dressed for the day in the armor of God. After all, the clothing you wear identifies you. Your clothing often identifies your job and your vocation. Every job at some level has a uniform, a code of what you're supposed to wear. Whether it's a suit and tie for a business person, maybe it's scrubs for a hospital worker. Y'all just get to wear pajamas all day. I think that's pretty cool. Uh, you get a fire suit for a firefighter, right? Maybe an apron for a chef. Whatever your vocation is, you dress for it. Well, likewise, in the Christian life, we get up every morning and we arm ourselves, we clothe ourselves in the armor of God. If you have been saved by Jesus, you wake up in the morning and you put on his clothes. We put on Christ. So specifically here, Paul says that we put on the breastplate of faith and love. The breastplate in the ancient military world would have been a piece of very strong armor that covered a soldier's full torso. It's like the ancient version of a bulletproof vest. And the breastplate covered the heart and all the key organs. The idea here is that we put on the breastplate of faith and love to keep our hearts aflame for the Lord. We pursue those daily means of grace so that our hearts don't grow cold and distant, but they might be protected and they might be stirred up to greater love and worship of Christ. And then we also put on the helmet of the hope of salvation. Obviously, a helmet protects your head, protects your dome. And when we fix our attention on the hope that we have in Christ, no matter what might figuratively fall on our heads, whether it be trials, sufferings, disappointments, or death, brothers and sisters, we can have a calm, confident assurance of faith. We have put on the helmets of hope, and nothing will shatter this. And notice again, Paul is hitting that beautiful trio of faith, love, and hope. Those are the weapons of the kingdom. Pretty counterintuitive, aren't they? But don't forget, the reputation of this church is having turned the world upside down. Rather than force and power and getting your own way, the weapons of the kingdom, faith, love, and hope. What, it, what would it look like if every day we got up every morning and by the Spirit we chose to put on faith, love, and hope? I mean, what if that marked the people who were prepared for the second coming? Usually we view those people as crazy, don't we? But what if they were full of faith, love, and hope? That would change the narrative a little bit. 
Listen, do you want to be prepared for Christ's return? Paul is urging us, we prepare by embracing our new status in Christ and living in the new lifestyle that he has called us into. We live with an ordinary faithfulness in the everyday stuff of life that becomes contagious to the people around us. That is how we are preparing for Christ's return. But as we move to our final point, that coming day of the Lord, as we've said, is a day of judgment. It's a day where all will stand before the Lord and give an account. So Paul seemed to have taken a little interlude here to say, how do you prepare for that day? But then what happens on that day when it arrives? How can that day possibly be a hopeful day? That's precisely where he closes our passage, the hope of Christ's return. Look at verses 9 and 10. This is a beautiful two-verse summary of the gospel right here. He says this, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. You see, though we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, wrath is not our destiny. Instead, God has willed us, his people, through his Son, to obtain salvation on the day of the Lord. And this is only possible because of the exchange that Paul explains right here. If you look closely, it says that Jesus died for us so that we might live with him. Jesus died for us as a substitution in our place so that we might have life. Just think back for a moment to that Roman cross a few thousand years ago. Remember, the imagery Paul has been drawing on this passage is that of darkness and light. And we see that imagery most profoundly in the scriptures. Ever since Genesis 1, where God said, let there be light, we see the next imagery that's most powerful about light and darkness on the cross. Because listen, the only way that we become children of light is because darkness descended on the light of the world at the cross. The gospel writers tell us that from 12 o'clock, from noon to 3 p.m., when the sun ought to be at its brightest in the Middle East, darkness fell over the land as Jesus hung on the cross. And this darkness represents all that we said darkness represents. Disorder, chaos, and death. And it all fell on Jesus. The imagery is strong, and I don't want you to miss it. Listen, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ has already experienced the coming judgment of the day of the Lord 2,000 years ago. And he's done it for us so that we might live with him. When we begin to grasp the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of Christ's love for us in this way, it completely changes our view of the coming day of the Lord. Because now, it is no longer a day of judgment. We have no reason to fear that day. It is a day of hope. It is our day of salvation. Russell Moore says it best. He says, when we are united to Christ, we are no longer to cringe before the thought of judgment day. That's because we no longer have the pressure to make the case for our own innocence. Our case is thoroughly debunked. At the cross, God has already revealed our guilt. 
And in our repentance from sin, we have already agreed with its verdict. And our ongoing confession of sin reaffirms this agreement. Judgment Day happened for us in a very real sense already at the place of the skull outside the gates of Jerusalem. Do you feel the hope of that? Your judgment day is not in the future. It has been moved to the past tense. That's why the author of Hebrews says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The day of the Lord is a day of hope for those of us who are eagerly waiting for him. We no longer fear judgment. We no longer are surprised by the thief when he comes. We are watchful. We are awake. We are looking forward to that day. Whether you are alive or you die and your body goes in the ground, Paul says you will be with Jesus. And his conclusion is the exact same as last week. That's where we started this morning. He says, therefore, verse 11, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. The church is an end-time community, but not a crazy end-time community, not a conspiracy theorist end-time community. We are an end-time community who together stays awake. We remain sober. We take up the armor of God and the weapons of the kingdom of faith, love, and hope. And in all things, whether in suffering or success, whether in life and in death, whether it's in the low moments or in the high moments, we encourage one another and we preach to one another the reminder that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. So church, let's encourage one another and build one another up as we eagerly await the day of our hope. Let's live in light of the end. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that is a light for our path. It is illuminating to our soul. It tells us the truths about Jesus and the truths about ourselves. And Lord, today as we are stirred up by way of reminder of the end of all things. I pray that here at the King's Church, we would be a people who live alert and awake and prepared for our coming day of hope. As we do so, may we encourage one another. May we build one another up in the faith. Holy Spirit, may you stir up within us love and good works. May our community and our church be marked by faith and by love and by hope in the day that is coming. And Lord, as we eagerly await your return, help us to wait with patience and with longing, and may the cry of our hearts be the cry of the end of the scriptures. Come, Lord Jesus, we beg you. We pray all of that in your name. Amen.